Yes, hello everyone. Um, I'm a bit nervous, so I'm going to have to read the introduction from a piece of paper <coughs> in order to make sure I don't mess it up. Uh, welcome to the first edition of the Reporter Cast. It's the first of many, I hope. This is going to be an outlet for the readers of Reporter.London to get the latest expertise on top issues linked to economic crime, security and geopolitics in Eastern Europe and Central Asia and we hope soon Africa as well. Uh, my name is Matej Roska, I'm a journalist with about 10 years of experience doing this and I created Reporter.London. Um, <laughs> the, idea, uh, the idea behind it, the reason I quit a moderately promising career with a top international publication is to do exclusive economic crime stories from poorer regions of the world because I believe the issue is extremely important, urgent and desperately underrated by general interest media. Uh, the podcast is going to be a platform for frank and informal discussions. <coughs> Excuse me. That's all right. The, the podcast <coughs> is going to be a platform for frank and informal discussions on politics, polemic, commentary uh, around the same topics that I mentioned before from guests that I think should receive more recognition. And at the same time, we're going to work as an agency, so we hope to collaborate closely with other media, and we're looking for co-publishing partnerships on exclusive stories around economic crime and illicit finance. We'll work as an agency um, and we hope to collaborate closely with other media in order to bring more of these types of stories to, to a massive audience. And um, this podcast um, will, would not be possible without our kind advertisers at uh, H5 Strategies, the exclusive uh, sponsors of this episode. Um, H5 Strategies is an executive and political advisory group based in Bucharest, and they specialize in the regions of Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and Africa. Uh, we're here in the very hip studios of Ten Lenses in East London, and we have a guest who is not only an expert in Russia and in dirty money, but also a protagonist in one of the most consequential stories in recent Russian history, and also in the global fight against corruption and illicit finance. Although at the time it seemed quite unremarkable, being just another suspicious death at the hands of the Russian government, it turned out to be a turning point in how the Kremlin was seen by the world, which caused a lot of pain for Putin, the dictator, thanks in part to our guests' work alongside others in bringing the truth of the story to light. His name is Jameson Firestone. He's a lawyer and campaigner with a lot of experience working in Moscow, and he now lives in London. He was kind enough to accept being the first guest on this new video cast, and I'm very grateful for that. He's a man who's been through a lot. He lived a truly extraordinary life and uh, is now going to tell us all about it. And this, I hope, sets the tone of this video cast for the foreseeable future, having guests with excellent insight and expertise, as well as fascinating personal stories to tell, to illustrate the fact that the subject of illicit finance, about which you'll be reading a lot more from Reporter.London, is just the relatively visible side of a bigger game these bad people are playing. The people who dabble in dirty money, fraud and corruption see it as just another, tool, just another tool to increase their own power and influence in a very antisocial, harmful, zero-sum game. I win, you lose, and if, um, if you have to lose everything for me just to add a little bit of wealth to, to, to my already swelling 
coffers, well, that's okay. And that applies to all sorts of bad characters in the world, from organized criminals, corporate fraudsters, corrupt politicians, oligarchs, dictators, warlords, and so on. Do you think that's broadly correct, Jameson? Yeah, I think that's broadly correct. All right. Well, then I, I suppose the first question should be about you, your personal background. Uh, you speak Russian. You were there in Moscow in the 90s after the fall of the Soviet Union, and you founded uh, Firestone Duncan, a corporate law firm. You were part of a handful of adventurous Americans who thought free Russia was going to be the promised land. And um, I'd like you to describe your expectations and feelings in the first few years of living there, your memories, anecdotes, and um, stuff that illustrates life and society at that point in history. What, what attracted you to, to, to Moscow? Well, in the late 80s, uh, it was Gorbachev and Perestroika and building democracy, or not really necessarily democracy, but something like democracy, an open society and an open market. Um, it's very exciting. And so uh, when I graduated from law school in 91, I basically took the first plane I, I could over there, didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, the one thing I knew it was, I wasn't going to do was practice law because I had no interest in practicing law whatsoever. Um, and then I got there and it was, it was uh, August of 91. And within, I remember very, I, I went to Moscow first, then I went to Kiev. And I remember standing on top of this hill in Kiev in August of 91 and uh, looking out over the city on Andreevskaya Spusk, and there's a beautiful church behind me. And I met some local, local guys my own age, you know, young 20s, who were drinking beers and was talking about Gorbachev's reforms. And they were, even with the reforms, they were like, we hate the Soviet Union and it's going to, it's been here forever and it's going to be here forever. And um, it basically died two weeks later. I mean, it didn't really go out of existence two weeks later, but two weeks later, uh, Gorbachev was kidnapped and uh, they rolled the tanks into Moscow and to St. Petersburg. And I was in St. Petersburg at the time. And I went back to Moscow and uh, all these people who had been working for private firms, they were now afraid to cooperatives. They were all afraid to go to work. They all thought they were going to be shipped off to Siberia or something. But uh, it's kind of festive in the streets, believe it or not. I would walk down the main street, which is, uh, well, it's a Gorkova at the time, now Tverskaya. And you got to the end of the street, there were Russian tanks in the street. And they were like Japanese tourists climbing the tanks. So I'd climb up with them, take my picture, right? So you get your picture with the tank commander by the gun. And there were babushki, like in the in front of the tanks. And, and they were yelling, you know, we're your grandmothers, we're your mothers, you're not going to shoot us, are you? And the answer was no, they weren't actually. Um, with the White House surrounded by a chain of human beings and grandmothers in front of the tanks, the tanks left. And they freed Gorbachev and uh, he didn't matter anymore. Can I just interrupt you for a second? Can we explain what the White House is for anyone who, who might not realize? Oh, yeah. So the White House at the time um, was, the, uh, was the parliament of, of the Russian Federation. And it became the symbol of freedom for Russia for, I would say, three very or two brief years, which I'll, I'll talk about a bit later. But by Yeltsin standing on this tank and having this human train form, form around the White House and uh, the tank left. And so when they freed Gorbachev, uh, he quickly found out that he had no power anymore because the real power was Yeltsin who stood on that tank. And uh, a few months later, on Christmas Day, the Soviet Union voted itself out of existence. Right. And you, you were there for it. And um, I suppose 
you you were expecting Russia to become a liberal democracy at the time. Well, I, I can tell you that it was amazing um, to be there and to see this happen and to be a, a part of it. And Russians were amazed. Uh, um, the, they, they flew the Russian tricolor flag over the Kremlin for the first time. Not this Soviet Republic of Russia, but the Russian flag. Somebody painted, forgive me, on Lenin's statue in, in front of, across the street from the Bolshoi Theater. It was just amazing. And so, yeah, people felt like if we could do this, we could do, we can do everything. And so the future was going to be bright and democratic and, and everybody was, was just proud that they had been able to do this. And how, how did you get into the law? How, how did you get into corporate law? Well, it was kind of an accident. I mean, it's more um, how I got into Russia was a better story, but I'll tell you both. Uh, <coughs> when, I was in, <coughs> when I was in school in my, uh, in my late teens, my, my father, for some reason, decided that the Soviet Union was going to fall apart and that I should study Russian. And I said, you know, that's like ridiculous and I'm not studying Russian. He said, well, then I'm not paying for your expensive private school. So he won. So I, I went to university with a background in Russian. And I was going to law school to um, basically just learn something that would be helpful in business. And uh, while I was in law school, uh, all these changes started happening, perestroika and all of that. And that's why I ended up going to Russia with a law degree, knowing that I would never practice law because I had zero interest in it whatsoever. I came to Russia to do business. So, uh, so before law, you, you, tried to, you tried to have your own business over there? Well, yeah. So what I, the first business I, I did was importing American cars to Russia to sell them. And in order to do that, you had to register a company. And the law on registration of companies was very new. And nobody knew how to do it. And, and so I had to essentially, it was being made up. I mean, they, they pass a law. They say, you, you, this is the type of company you can register. But when you actually try and register it, and you go to the registration chamber and they say, well, we'll give you like a temporary certificate, but to get a permanent certificate, you've got to open a bank account first and show us that it's open and tell us what the number is. So you go to the bank and they say, we're not going to open you a bank account unless you go to the pension fund and get this kind of sprofka, this the receipt. So this, the pension fund, they say, well, we want to see this from here. So you kind of, they were all making these procedures up and nobody had it written down. And it was such a pain that I thought there got to be some money in actually selling this. I might as well set up a little thing on the side, helping people set up companies, right? So I set up this little thing on the side and I did the car business. And that little thing on the side became the law firm, which became much bigger than the car business. So I got out of the car business um, and ended up running a law firm in Russia. Right. Well, that's quite interesting. So there was, there was a different opportunity. Um, and you mentioned your father earlier. You said he had links to Moscow as well. And um, I know from our previous conversations that uh, he he had a, he had a particular influence on you, and then you started to uh, to have a, a particular uh, view of the law, partly because of him. Do, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so my my father is an interesting character. Um, my father um, went to prison in the United States for sheltering 130 million dollars from the U.S. government. And was in prison while he was urging me to continue my Russian studies in, in, um, in university. Don't give up. He said, I gave you this great gift. I forced you to study Russian. Look what's happening in Russia. Keep studying. Um, and you should go there and you should do business. When I, you know. And so I did. So I went over there and I was doing this car import business. And my father gets out of jail. 
And he says, I can come over and help you. Now, in retrospect, this was not the best idea. Uh, but anyway, my father came over and we were doing this car business. And <clears throat> all of a sudden, all these mafia groups start appearing in, in, in Russia. Just lots of them everywhere. Um, Guys with, with leather jackets and... Yeah, more like chains, and more stuff. like tracksuits, tracksuits track suits and chains and flatheads. You know, they've shaved. We, we used to call them flatheads, actually. And um, so my father had this idea that we should go pick a mafia group before one picked us. So uh, he, he got some recommendations. And the next thing I knew, my father and the car business were in business with the mafia. And I was thinking... <laughs> You've been to jail. I don't want to go to jail. I'm a graduate of a U.S. law uh, school. So I eventually focused on the law firm, got out of the car business. Uh, my dad's mafia group that he was working with um, turned out they, they bought all his cars from him and then um, immediately froze the money and tried to have it returned. So uh, my father then... Uh, froze put a double freeze on the money so that it couldn't go back to them so they had the cars my dad had the money um and had to leave russia very quickly because these people didn't intend to pay for the cars so they felt ripped off right <laughs> they're supposed to get the cars and keep the money um and my father never returned to russia again which was probably good for me and and the russian federation um so i then went on to focus exclusively on law at that point right well that's interesting also because it um it, it, it illustrates, I suppose, how, um, you know, amid the anarchy and the liberty, there was a, a serious problem with organized crime and lawlessness, wasn't it? Right. So in the 90s, you had all these groups. And what they would do is, you know, they would, I mean, they like, I think they, they read the, the advertising section of the paper. And they would see like business opens up, like a, you've opened a car, an auto salon, right? So they, they come to you, but they don't come threatening. Like they come as like some guy who wants to like buy cars and they, they, they say, this looks great. You know, how are you doing? Are you selling many cars? You know, and they get all, and then they announce themselves. Actually, we're not here to buy any cars. We're really, uh, you know, your, your roof, your protection, and you need to pay us and we'll protect you. And, you know, in a way they actually <clears throat> did in those days offer some protection services. Um, you would generally, if another mafia group came, you would give them the business card of whoever was protecting you and they'd sort it out on their own. Now, either they'd go away, the new group, or you'd find out that the old group went away and you had new protection, <clears throat> but you're always paying somebody. But what was important in those days was that the police weren't in on all of this. The police were for the most part reasonably honest, completely inept, underfunded, couldn't do anything. But the police was completely separate from the mafia, and, and that would not remain the case. So later on, the police and the mafia kind of merged. That's what Putin did to the country. Right. So uh, I suppose we could say that Putin, when he came to power, he promised people that they would not return to the 90s because there was a lot of poverty, a lot of alienation, and a lot of uh, corruption, and... Uh, I suppose he brought uh, he, he brought order to the country by merging organized crime and the police in order to uh, to have fewer cars exploding, fewer people dying in the street, and uh, I suppose more people living stable lives. Isn't that well? That wasn't supposed to be our deal. That wasn't the deal we made with Putin. Um, and you know we should probably go back a little bit before we get to Putin. So because uh, you mentioned the the poverty and the instability. <clears throat> so in the 90s, you had this crazy free-for-all 
were criminal groups who just announced themselves. Um, and uh, there would be shootouts and all of that. But really, the <clears throat> there were two out, kind of outstanding events, right, in the 90s. One was 93. So in 1993, Yeltsin got into a war with his own parliament. And the parliament, which was mostly communist, uh, impeached the president, and the president dissolved parliament. Um, the parliamentarians didn't leave the parliament. They actually hold themselves up in the parliament. Uh, and this went on for quite some time uh, until there was actually fighting um, at the parliament where the parliamentarians said that they, they stormed the mayor's office, which was across the street. They took hostages. Um, and then it got all very, for a brief time again, like an open air affair. There had been some fighting in the streets and barricades made out of buses and trams. But all that passed in one day. And people were all walking around the White House, including me. Um, and as evening started to fall, the parliamentarian said, to the TV tower, to Estancano, we have to take the national TV tower. And um, you had all these people getting into trucks to go to the TV tower to take it. And I had been there with several friends. We got separated. And the one thing that was clear to me and the one friend I remained with, we were a group of 10, was that if Yeltsin didn't kill all those people who were going to the TV station, there would be no Yeltsin government the next day. And so that's what Yeltsin did. He killed them all. He rolled a tank up in front of the parliament building the next morning. And as the, um, it's a beautiful day. And as the sun came up and it was getting bright, this tank drove up to the White House, which was the symbol of Russian freedom, where Yeltsin had stood on a tank, and it fired, it, it fired, and you heard boom, it's ball, can't, the, the shell slams into the wall of the, the front wall of the parliament and falls down, fire comes out, and the whole country is watching this, is watching Yeltsin shell the symbol of Russian freedom. And even if you felt that the Yeltsin government had to stay in power, it was such an incredible shock. It would be like an American tank shelling the Capitol or a British tank shelling Parliament. Everybody, I don't care what side you were on, was in complete shock. And so after that, um, <clears throat> Russia became a pretty much a presidential republic. The laws were changed to make the presidency very strong. And then in that was 93. In 98, we had a financial collapse where uh, Russia defaulted. And all of a sudden, all the banks failed. And people were poor. Um, I mean, I wasn't poor because my business was doing really well. And people who were in business weren't poor. But most of the country was absolutely broke. And um, so there was this feeling amongst the general population as Yeltsin was getting sick uh, at the end of the 90s, that we we have to get away from this chaos. And so when Yeltsin surprised us, surprised us all on New Year's Day and gave us Mr. Putin in 99, 2000, um, we didn't know who he was. Uh, and we, we really didn't have a, we didn't know whether to have faith in him or not. But um, he did start to bring stability and he started to, he started to bring real, he brought real reforms to the tax code and to other things where initially the signs looked hopeful. I was never a believer, by the way, but, but the stability was something that Russians craved. 
And as we've seen since then, they're willing to make any deal possible as long as they have this so-called stability. Right. But um, in the chaos before Putin, um, you you were living there, you said you were in business, you were in, um, I suppose, the rarefied social social, uh, groups of of Moscow and St. Petersburg, relatively wealthy upper middle class people, and you were living as a gay man there. Um, did you feel maybe that um, for, for for a gay man in Moscow at those uh, you know at, at that juncture in in history there was more freedom and and more um, more ability to be open than I suppose in uh, in other parts of the world and how, uh, how how did that feel for you in the 90s really? Well, actually, so the funny thing is, you know, now Russia is not a good place to be gay, but in the 90s it was fine. I mean, I had lived in America uh, before that. And so when, but when I came over, I lived in a liberal city. I lived in New York. So it was kind of okay to be gay in New York, but it wasn't okay to be gay in most of the United States when I went over. And I wasn't someone who would walk down the street holding hands with another man in New York. Um, and so in a way, moving to Moscow wasn't that big a change. And um, during the 90s, the late 90s, the early 2000s, Moscow had a great gay scene. I mean, it was, I mean, they had wonderful clubs, they had bookstores. People, you couldn't walk down the street holding hands together, but I wasn't used to that anyway. But but the thing is, is that Russians, you know, they didn't think about gays um, in the uh, in the '90s. I mean, homosexuality. It's like you know, I don't know, people on Mars or something. It just wasn't in the in the, in the public dialogue. Um, Russia really started to become a more difficult place for gays under Putin um, in 2000. Six was probably the first time when there was going to be another gay parade in Moscow and the mayor, Lushkov, didn't want it. Um, so he wrote his legal advisors, what can we do to stop this? He said, well, the Constitution, this is back when the Constitution still mattered in Russia, says you can't deny it just on the basis of you don't want a gay parade. But if there were going to be, if there was going to be civil unrest, <clears throat> you could stop it. So what Lushkov did was he got a bunch of buses and he brought in busloads of skinheads, and, and, and very religious babushki with icons. And he brought them to all the gay places during, you know, like gay week or whatever it was, so that there would be riots, basically. And there were riots. And it was actually very funny because one of the part owners of Moscow's largest gay club has a silent partner who's high up in the presidential administration. So when the skinheads uh, stormed Three Monkeys Club, the, uh, he made a call to his partner. The partner called... Um, Oman, the riot police, Oman came out and beat the hell out of all of the skinheads, right? And the next day, the skinheads had this thing on their website, you know, we're collecting money for our medical costs. So that was kind of funny. But, um, but obviously, after 2013, when Putin passed this, um, and this, and I was gone in 2013, but my, my, but my friends have had to live through this, and many of them have left because of it. When he passed this gay propaganda law, which basically says it's not okay to be gay in public, what it really does in front of children, what it really does is it makes um, being gay in front of children child abuse. And when you say, well, what is gay? Well, being gay, well, um, raising your children in a gay family is uh, even if you yourself, even if they're your natural children, they can be taken away from you because it's child abuse. If you have an adoption, it's canceled. Uh, being gay in front of children means talking on TV about why this law is discriminatory because children could be watching TV, so you can't discuss the law so on he TV. So he, he wrote it in law that it's, uh, it's an immoral thing and... Uh 
So I suppose the arc of uh, the arc of, of liberty kind of ended there. Yeah, and more than that, look, um, what Putin did was he created a new class of people. You could be the most uneducated, um, racist drunkard from a small town in Russia, right? Really the bottom of the social strata where the, until, until Putin started this thing against the gays, you were at the lowest of the low, but now there's somebody everybody can spit on. No matter how low you are, you can always point your finger at the gays. That's what Putin did. He created a, a common enemy, I suppose. He wanted to, he wanted to do that anyway, I suppose. But um, it's interesting that you mentioned the cancellation of the, um, of, of the Pride Parade. And I suppose you took that as a, as a nominous sign. And um, by then you were, I suppose, a prominent, uh, a prominent lawyer in, uh, in Russia and uh, you were working with Hermitage. Yeah. With Bill Browder. And um, we're, we're coming up to, to the core of, of the story now. So w- would you mind telling us how you fell in with, with Hermitage Capital and then uh, with, uh, with sure. Sergei Magnitsky, of course? Sure. So let me go back a bit. So as I said, the law firm was an accident. Um, I started the law firm because it was so hard to register the car company that I thought if I could make some money helping people, reg- helping foreigners register businesses. And so we started from corporate registration and then we thought we should be a full service law firm. <clears throat> and so we became a full service law firm. Then we thought if we could offer tax advice, we'd make a lot more money in law because somebody comes to the country, they say, look, how do we, what do we need to set up here to do business and how do we do it so that we're tax efficient? And if you, if you don't have the ability to give them tax advice, they might go somewhere else where they get the advice and then not come back, right? So um, then we set up a, a accounting and audit division. And um, so the firm grew. And, 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 you know, by the, I guess, 2001, 2002, I had 35 people working for me at the time. Um, and we had a full accounting and audit division. And we had this guy... Uh, by 96, I think, Ter- Sergei took over. Uh, so by na- from, ni- from 1996 on, ni- 98, sorry, 98 on, Sergei was running our tax and audit department. And he was a young Russian guy, graduated from School of Economics. And, um, and so what would normally happen is clients would come, they would meet with Sergei first. He would tell them, you have to structure it this way. He would write a memo for us um, <clears throat> in the legal department and we would go ahead and, uh, and, and build that structure and do their legal affairs. As time went on, much of Russia became tax-driven. Putin, like the worst crime you could have under Putin was not paying your taxes. He created the tax police. Tax police had um, you know, masks and body armor and machine guns, and they would bust your door down, and, and they would bring criminal tax charges against you. And so as this went on, we had to do more and more tax um, cases, defending our clients against tax cases because the government would try and shake you down. And so Sergei was our best tax guy. So at first we were kind of like, okay, we're going to send... So in Russia, I, I should roll back to how do you become a lawyer in Russia? There are two ways to become a lawyer in Russia. You can go to law school and practice, or you can just practice. You don't actually need to go to law school to be a lawyer in, in, in Russia. There are no legal... There are no licenses or any of that stuff. And so... At first, what we were doing is whenever we had a tax case, we'd send somebody who, who went to law school to argue it, and we'd have Sergei in the courtroom trying to advise him. And we were doing really bad with all of those cases. So, I mean, we, we just kept losing because you can't really 
whisper into your lawyer's ears while he's standing up. So finally, we just told Sergey, look, you you handle them, right? You go out there. Um, and he's like, well, I didn't go to law school. I said, you don't have to go to law school. Is there anywhere written that you to be a lawyer, you have to go to law school? He said, no. So he would go out there. And we won every. We never lost another tax case again, uh, and and it was great. And 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 by the way, the fact that we never lost tax cases again says a lot about what Russia was back then. You could stand on the law, and you could win, um, and that was something that Putin started destroying in about I would say 2010 with the Hudorkovsky case. But until until then, uh, our experience was you could do everything right. You could stand on your rights. And and we would win your case if you were. So Sergei Magnitsky, as as a, 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 a lawyer in court, had this sort of um, core belief that you make your argument in front of the judge, you bring your facts, and uh, things are possibly going to go your way if you just make an honest, strong argument. Yes, as a matter of things, always went our way. So we, you know, so unfortunately, we all got used to this. We all got um, kind of suckered into the belief that this was the way Russia was going. Now, in reality, two things were going on. Um, One was, as I said, there was law for a while. But the other is we were dealing with particularly lawful companies, foreign companies or or foreign companies dealing with certain Russian companies who, who weren't paying bribes. So we weren't really fully immersed into the world, the other, I'll call it the parallel universe, where there was a parallel universe out there, increasingly under Putin, of companies that just bought protection, bought legal protection by buying the judge or by buying prosecutors. And and when those, and, and that was, we kind of missed the development of that. We could see it in the distance because there was all this, what they called corporate rating. And corporate rating is when you use the law to steal a company, you you create fake criminal cases against somebody and, and you put them in jail and you take their stuff. Um, and that really reached its head, as I said, in 2010 with the bogus case against Hudorkovsky, who was the richest oligarch in, in, in Russia. He owned Yukos Oil and Putin wanted to take his oil company and put him in jail. And so they created this series of fake cases against him where they did exactly that. They, they put him in jail and they took his company. And after that, everybody kind of learned that that's, a new the, way reality. That, that was that's the, the way you do it. That, that's when the new reality set in. But moving back from that just a little mm-hmm. bit, you were, you were in, um, in a commercial relationship, I suppose, with Bill Browder. He had Hermitage Capital, which was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, um, foreign investor in Russia at the time. He had shares and stocks in all sorts of large companies. And um, then he had a problem. Right. Uh, Sergei Magnitsky um, worked with him to, to try to get to the bottom of it. There was a fraud. Do you mind yeah, talking yeah, no, a little bit about that? No, not at all. So, um, so what happened was, um, you know, when I accidentally became like the go-to hedge fund lawyer in, in Moscow. Um, one day I just realized so that you had the Russian stock market. The Russian stock market started out very small. All of the stocks in the Russian stock market, everything, every Russian company out there <clears throat> together um, was valued at less than the price of the Coca-Cola Corporation. That included Gazprom with all these huge gas re- reserves and everything else. And so obviously those stocks were going to go up 
Um, people were going to realize the value. And so hedge funds started pouring in, people who were um, Western investors with hundreds of millions of dollars ready to buy shares. So uh, I, I'd had this idea at one point that West is very formalistic. And so in America, when you say, you know, I want, I want to buy 2,000 shares of Exxon, you're on the telephone with your broker, you say 2,000 shares of Exxon, it happens, right? In Russia, you do that, but then there's some formal contract that has to be signed, and so some, if you say, I want to buy 2,000 shares of Gazprom, there's got to be a, a real paper contract that's signed and sealed between the two parties. And so I, and there's all this accounting work and there's all this other stuff. And I thought, you know, somebody's going to make a killing <clears throat> if you just make it easy for these hedge fund managers. If, if you, you do the back office work, you just say, we'll do all the legal and the tax and the accounting. You just make that phone call and say, you know, a million shares of Gazprom, Right. And, and everything else that happens to, to finish that contract and pay the taxes, we'll do it for you. So I did that. And all of a sudden, I had all these hedge funds coming to me. So uh, Bill Browder was the, the head of this hedge fund, Hermitage. Um, he came to us uh, in, um, he was 90, 96. And uh, they started out small. Uh, they were uh, buying Russian shares, and we were setting up the way they would buy those shares. So one of the things that they wanted to do and that everybody wanted to do was buy shares in companies like Gazprom and Sparebank, which couldn't be sold. Um, there was a Yel- Yeltsin had passed a law, a decree that said you can't, that foreigners can't hold these shares. Now, it wasn't illegal to hold them. What, what would happen if you broke the law was that Gazprom could buy your shares from you at the price you paid for them. So if you paid $1 for the share and you held it 10 years and it was worth 100, right? If you weren't holding it legally, Gazprom could come in and take it from you for that $1. So people like Bill Browder and Hermitage, they wanted to make sure that they were holding legally because they were going to put in $100 million and they didn't, and, and it was going to turn into $2 billion. And when it comes to $2 billion, they don't want Gazprom to come back and go, by the way, we can buy that for $100 million, right? Because they, so, so, our, that was our job, and that was uh, Magne- under Magnitsky's uh, direction to set them up uh, with legal ways uh, to buy these Russian shares and to hold them uh, in a way that Gazprom wouldn't be able to buy them back at the same price we paid for them. So that was what we were doing, and that's how we met Bill. And uh, this has um, th- this has been the, the sort of ongoing sort of run of the mill uh, work. Uh, they decided what stocks and shares to buy. You made it happen for them. You you made the formalities, but then there was a fraud against against Hermitage, wasn't there? And Sergey Magnitsky decided that it's worth investigating. Right. So you know, again, so here we are. We're kind of, yeah, yeah. I, I set my law firm up on a, on a thousand dollars basically back in '93, and um, here we are now in. Um, about 2006, 2000, let's say 2006 now. And my law firm has grown a lot and we've become this go-to law firm for hedge funds. And we have something like 5 billion US under management. When I say under management, I don't mean management like we're making the buy-sell decisions, but all of the documents for all of the companies holding those shares are in our office. And everything done 
regarding when those companies have to pay tax, how much tax those companies should pay, everything done to, to, to move those shares around when the buys and sells, we're running all that. And it's kind of a funny thing because one day you wake up and I, I mean, I remember this. I remember this one time you don't realize where you are at a particular point sometimes. So I, I remember a client calling me and, and asking me why I wasn't a signatory on his share portfolio and yelling at me because he has $2 million of shares. And I just said offhandedly, I manage $5.5 billion worth of shares, right? Uh, and, and, and then I apologized to him immediately because I was like, I didn't mean to be rude. That's the first time I just, I just, wow, right? So um, although I was slow in noticing this, the Russian authorities were not slow in noticing this. So um, what happened was Bill made his... Uh, money in a, an interesting way. So the way he would pick shares is he would pick shares in companies that were stealing a lot of money. Um, and because they were stealing, when you, when companies are stealing, it basically means the management is stealing from the company, which is not a good thing. You, you normally don't want to hold shares in a company where the management is stealing your money. But he would buy these shares in these companies, and then he'd have the management thrown out. He'd expose all the corruption, and then the share price would go way up. So he owned a lot of, Hermitage owned a lot of Gazprom. When Putin came to power, um, Hermitage presented uh, the government with a whole portfolio of just who at Gazprom was stealing and how. And the government got rid of them all, um, which was great, and put in their own people. Um, Now, what wasn't great is that the, the new people stole more than the old people. So Hermitage, again, did its thing exposing the corruption. And this time it was like, sorry, but you see, those are, those are our people now. It was the reaction of the, the Putin government. So they, um, they closed Bill's visa, so he couldn't come back in the country, so he was in England. And um, Bill tried to get in the country a bunch of times, but couldn't, couldn't get his visa fixed. I mean, even approached da- Medvedev at Davos, can't, if, if Medvedev couldn't fix it, who could, right? And so um, he sold all the shares. So Hermitage sold um, approximately um, $4 billion in shares, and it paid in tax uh, half a billion dollars in taxes. And then when that happened, all we had, all my firm had left were these empty companies. And so our mission was to close the empty companies. I mean, they've paid half a billion dollars in taxes. They don't have anything anymore. They're of no use to anybody. So one day while we were closing these companies, um, at around probably nine in the morning, I hear this commotion in my, um, my reception room at the office. So I go out there and there's this SWAT team of 20 police officers with guns and armor. And, and they, they had a search warrant to take documents related to one Hermitage company. And we could immediately tell that something was very wrong. Um, first of all, the doc, the, the, they said it was a tax-related case. And they said it had to do with the, the, the amount of tax that we paid. And, and, you know, we were like, that one, that one particular ca- company paid about $250 million in taxes. So, so we knew something was very wrong. I mean, normally you, have, normally you have problems in Russia when you don't pay taxes, not when you do pay taxes. Um, in any case, they proceeded to um, rip apart my office. Now, when you have a search warrant, 
It allows you to take documents related to a certain thing, so it was to this one company. But they were taking documents related to lots of companies, and their test was they had forensic accountants, I mean, people who could read accounting, and they would be ripping the accounting ledgers of all our companies off the the, the, the shelves and going through them and going, this company paid like $20 million in taxes. Should we take it? Yeah, we're taking it. We're taking it. So they were taking companies that had nothing to do with the company they were looking for. And the only thing that bound it all together was companies that paid huge tax. So when it was all over, um, they had taken pretty much everything in the office. They had taken all the computers. They had taken the server. Um, the phone system was down. But there was one computer that hadn't been hooked up to any monitor or anything like that, and I guess they thought it was just nothing, and it was the backup of the server. So um, we bought a whole bunch of new computers. We rebacked up the server. Within a week, we were up and running again, and we did what lawyers do. We started arguing with the police. Like, one, why did you do that? It, you know, this company, we have, also, we have all sorts of audits and proofs that this company paid all its taxes. And two, give us back all the other companies that aren't related to this one. And they kept going, you know, making excuses. No, later, this, that. Months went by. And then one day we got this call from a bailiff in the court of St. Petersburg, seeing so, you know, a court officer who's there when the trial's going on. And they're like, you know, you, you run these companies. I'm like, well, we act for these companies. So how do you intend to pay? And they named like this sum of rubles. I mean, it was like 5.3 billion rubles. It, it, it was, uh, it's like, no, sorry. It was $973 million. Don't let me like, let, not get confused, but in rubles. And they were like, how do you intend to pay this $973 million that you've lost? And we went, you know, what are you, what are you talking about? And, um, they said, well, you know, you, there's been a trial and you've lost. Said, there hasn't been a trial. We're the lawyers and you need lawyers in the courtroom. And we weren't in the courtroom, so there was no trial. He goes, listen, I'm the bailiff. I just work here. I was here. You guys had lawyers and you lost. $973 million. Said, Can we call you back? So, um, you know, we said, what's going on? And Sergey was talking with Hermitage and he said, look, um, who hires lawyers? Well, the directors. Okay. And who appoints the directors? The owner. Okay. So we need to find out if you still own your companies. So Sergey checks the share registrars and we don't own the companies anymore. Hermitage, Hermitage no longer owned its companies. Its companies were now under the control of a convicted killer by the name of Viktor Markalov. Um, and this guy, Viktor Markalov from Kazan, from Tartarstan, sorry, from Tartarstan, he had put in his friends to be directors of three hermitage companies, he and, he and his friends, and they hired lawyers. And apparently what they did was they, they faked, they, they had three companies while the police were holding our documents. They, they set up three companies with like $400 each. And those three companies sued three hermitage companies that had made exactly $973 million and that had paid $230 million tax. So you have these three empty companies that sue our three companies that also have no money, but at one time paid almost a billion, uh, made almost a billion dollars in profits and, and, and paid $230 million in tax. And, they, and these new lawyers, when the judge said you're being accused of owing almost a billion dollars, said, yes, your honor, we owe the money. <laughs> and so the judge said, Fine, then ruled in favor of you guys. 
And so here's the magic. If you have a company that made $973 million and you have a court judgment that says you've lost $973 million, it all evens out at zero. And so these guys with that court judgment and now in control of our companies ran to the tax inspectorate and said, hey, when, when our companies paid $230 million in tax, we thought we had $973 million in profit, but this court judgment makes it zero. So give us our money back. And in one day, the Russian government gave them back $973 million because everybody in the tax office had been bribed and was part of the deal. 230, you mean? Sorry, 230 million. Yeah, 230 yeah. million they right. got back as so a tax rebate. As a, tax as a fraudulent rebate. tax rebate. Exactly. And, you know, just in the interest of time. So uh, Sergei Magnitsky uncovered all of this. He investigated it. He uncovered it. He made police complaints against it. And he was arrested for it. Yeah. Um, so Sergei, armed with his belief that you can win in court and that there is law in Russia... Um, went after these guys um, representing Hermitage Capital, and he exposed what they did. And, and, and you have to remember that that original raid in the, of my offices where all these documents were taken were part of the plan. So the plan was that corrupt police take the documents that they needed to take control of these companies and then they put in their convicted killers as the fake management. And they had their own corrupt lawyers who brought these fake lawsuits and said, yes, judge, we owe the money. And the judge was already paid to do the right thing. Because, I mean, if you think about it, an honest judge would say, wait a minute, if you owe the money, why are you in court, right? I, I mean, there, something smells, right? But uh, the judge was in on it. And the tax inspector, tax inspectors were in on it because nobody refunds a quarter of a billion dollars without any checks the day you ask for it. That just doesn't happen. So, so because the police were in on it, when Sergei reported it, the criminal gang just used its police officers to arrest him. So they arrested him and they put him in jail, accused him of committing the crime that he had reported. Um, and that's where things started to get really bad. Right. And um, it wasn't... Long after that, that um, Sergei was beaten by, by supposedly by the guards at, at the prison, and uh, he was deprived of his medical treatment, and then he died. Right. So to be clear, Sergei was a healthy guy when he went to jail. It's not like he had any medical um, issues. But they would take him and put him in cells that were minus 25 in the, in the winters or, or, or plus 37 or 42 in the, in the summers and give him dirty food. And, you know, the guy got sick because put me in a cell like that, I'd get sick. They denied him medical care. And then when he was sick and on death's door and he was going to die without an operation, they moved him. Uh, they took him immediately to a prison that had medical facilities, but they didn't put him, uh, they didn't give him any medical care. They put him in a plain cell with cement walls and floor, and they put him in a straitjacket, and they had eight guys with riot guards beat him, and then they let him out of the straitjacket and left him on the floor dying, and they shut the door, and um, there was an ambulance there, but they kept the guys outside the door, and they, let Sir, they kept Sergei in that room for an hour and, and 18 minutes until he died, and then they opened the door to the ambulance people and said, here's your patient. So they killed him. Yes. 
And this is, I suppose it's it's worth mentioning, although a lot of our viewers would, would know the story, but this is... Um, this is a brilliant guy, a guy with principles and and a, a belief in in a better future, and um, a, a guy with with a moral code that was absolutely obliterated and 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 destroyed by this evil regime. Really, I mean, in light of what what they're doing in Ukraine, I suppose we can just call it the, call it evil because that's what it is. And um, this 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 triggered something. It uh, it triggered something in you and in Bill Browder. And um, before we get to that, actually. Can you recall just uh, where you were when you find out when you found out that he died, and then uh, I suppose soon after that you you had to leave Russia. So could you recall how you left Russia as well? Well, okay. First of all, I, I actually left before. So when Sergey was oh, arrested, sorry, yeah. yeah, when Sergey was arrested, um, the next day, police arrest groups came for three more, um, three more lawyers. Now, when Sergey was arrested, they had claimed that they were a search group that they just wanted to search Sergei's home for documents. Um, we didn't expect any more arrests after that, but the next day they sent the same search groups to three more lawyers, and obviously Sergei had been arrested the last night, so now we know these aren't search groups, these are arrest groups. So two of my lawyers weren't home. One of my lawyers was out of the country, so he stayed out of the country. Another lawyer wasn't home, he left the country. Another lawyer was home, um, I took her out the back door and got her to the train station. I took her on an overnight train and we went to Kiev and then we flew to London. So I got her out. Um, after having been in Russia, in London, sorry, for several months, I then decided to return to Russia while Sergei was in jail. I was American, headed a law firm. I was a member of the board of directors of the American Chamber of Commerce, and, and nobody had threatened me, so I didn't think I was going to have too many problems. But I went back to Russia, and we were um, continue, We were essentially trying to f- get Sergei out of jail and figure out who really stole this money. And the more we pressed, the more problems I had until the same criminal group that stole this money uh, attempted to steal another $21 million and make it look like I did it. The result, if they had been successful, would be that they would be $21 million richer and I'd be sitting in a Russian jail, Um, at which point I realized I had to go. So I left for the final time. And um, within about three months after that, Sergei was killed. So I was in London. Bill was in London. Some of my lawyers were in London. And we just decided we're not going to let this stand. Um, Now, in, in... the normal way this stuff goes is corrupt police and officials steal your stuff, you're in jail, and, and, they're, and they go on and do this over and over and over again. Um, now, these people had stolen $250 million, um, a group of them, a very large group of them. But my client, Bill Browder, was a billionaire, $1 billion in one pocket, not split with anybody. And Bill and I wanted to get these people. And so Bill turned his operation. Here he has this hedge fund operation with all these great financial analysts and all these people who've been trained to find stealing within companies. And he's got this legal team that's been dealing with, 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 with this whole crime. And we've got nothing to do um, because we're out of Russia. And so we all went full time um, in 
going after these guys, following the money and going after them. And we would find the money and we would freeze it and we would make videos about these people and we would show how much money the police officer stole and what house he has and what car he drives and how this guy living on $6,000 you know, $6, uh, a year has... Uh, 20 cars or something, and they're all registered to his 70-year-old mother, including the Porsche Carrara, right? And how the tax inspectors, these you know, grandmotherly, four babushki-like ladies, right, stole $42 million. And they're buying things on the Palm, du- on the Palm, du- uh, Palm Island in Dubai. And we're freezing their bank accounts. And like Russia's going great. You know, like we would send these videos to Navalny and he'd be like, this is amazing. And he would then put the, the video, blog, the videos out. And people are like, because you know, I was doing, writing the videos and starring in the videos. And they're like, Jameson for president, Jameson for head of the Ministry of Inter- Internal Affairs, because nobody ever saw anybody go after the Russian authorities and win. So you were, you were exactly, you were, you were pioneers in sort of exposing corruption and and organized crime blending with with the political environment over there but you also campaigned very hard to to get magnitsky laws passed so this is what what is now pretty well known as uh, as the magnitsky justice campaign so you've had um, you and bill browder of course you you've had a, a worldwide campaign to get all these people who 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 defrauded and uh, and had a hand in, in killing Sergei Magnitsky, to get them sanctioned, get their assets frozen, get them banned from traveling out in the West. And this, this campaign was, was successful. Yeah, I mean... But it was also a little bit late, maybe, given what's happening in Ukraine now. So what are your thoughts about that? Do you think the, the West should have moved a little bit sooner? Or? Well, it's not the campaign that was late. It's the reaction that's late. So to be clear, we had this Correct. wild success within Russia of exposing people and doing it through YouTube videos. If you watch a Navalny video now, like they took, Navalny took his video style from us, right? Um, But we didn't get any results. Everybody who stole was protected by the government. They gave the police officers who arrested and killed Sergei awards as like Russia's best investigators. The tax inspector, tax people were all protected. They came out with cases saying they were tricked and innocent, tricked into into sending $42 million to themselves, right? Um, So after not getting a result in Russia, other than a bunch of people going, wow, this is great, um, we turned to this campaign in the West, which was the Magnitsky campaign, which is um, let's put laws in every country that says that human rights abusers and corrupt people can't come to our countries and anything they have in our countries is frozen. Uh, We got it first in 2012 in the United States. We expanded it um, in 2016 in the United States because the original one was human rights only and it only applied to Russia. The uh, 2016 global, Global Magnitsky applied to corruption as well, and all over the world. And we've since gotten it in Canada, the UK, the EU. Basically, it's becoming the norm to have a Magnitsky law as opposed to not having it. Now, the problem after that became that governments tend to use the Magnitsky law as a political tool. So um, it's very difficult to get on a Magnitsky list. Uh, I mean, if you cut up Khashoggi in in an embassy, you get on the Magnitsky list because it's so big and so horrible and so worldwide. But the vast majority of human rights abusers and corrupt people were perfectly safe 
from the Magnitsky list because every government needs to make a political decision who we're going to put on this year and do we want to piss up piss off Mr. Putin we don't really want to anger Putin so we'll put like five we'll put five Russians on this year right and that's what we were fighting with because we kept going around saying you have to sanction hundreds of people a year for the terrible things they're doing openly uh whether they're persecuting Navalny or, 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 or whether they're uh, invading Georgia or, well, Georgia was pre-Magnitsky, so that's not right, but certainly whether they're invading Crimea in 2014. And governments were reluctant to do this and chose to sanction almost nobody. Right. And uh, I suppose this, this is the answer to what, what was going to be my next question, which is, did you feel that you were being listened to properly before February the 24th? This year, when Russia greatly expanded its illegal invasion and incipient uh, genocide of Ukraine, really, uh, you you were uh, arguing for sanctions and you were arguing for the for the true nature of the Putin regime to be to be acknowledged in the West. But uh, as you said, you uh, you didn't get uh, you, you didn't get a, 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 an affirmative reaction from from the leaders. They they decided to to avert. The rise, uh, but um, I suppose now, since February the twenty fourth, uh, they did come round to to your view and to to the to the correct view, really the accurate view of the nature of the regime. And um, you're one of a handful of people who I suppose are entitled to lift a finger and say, "I told you so." Uh, but uh, how does that feel? Does it feel? Do you feel vindicated, or do you feel that? Uh, do you feel worried that uh, action has been has has been taken too late, and you know we still have a, an absolute tragedy happening in Ukraine? Still, you know, to feel vindicated, you have to feel wronged. I, I don't feel. I mean, yes, I'm I'm vindicated, but but like I knew I was right, and I didn't need anybody to go around vindicating me. I knew what it was, right? And and Bill knew what it was, and lots of other activists knew what it was. Um, I feel like we missed a great opportunity. In 2014, uh, Putin took, took Crimea and put Russian proxies into the Donbass. Let's not call them separatists. They're not separatists. They're Russian proxies. They work for the Russian Federation. And, and we allowed him to do that. We allowed him, not only did we not sanction him, we, we gave credibility to this separatist movement by calling it a separatist movement when it was simply Russian proxies and it was an occupied, ter- it was a, a Ukrainian territory occupied by the Russian Federation. And we let him get away with that. And I think, you know, Putin made two calculations when he started this war, one of which was completely wrong and he should have been able to understand it. And one where he, you know, turned out to be wrong, but I, I wouldn't have guessed. So the one where he was wrong completely was that Kiev was going to fall in three days. Um, I mean, it was just stupid. America um, went into Iraq and was welcomed with a coalition and was welcomed initially as liberators. And trillions of dollars later, with the support of maybe only half of the population of Iraq, Right. Iraq is a mess and the wealth and arm might of the entire Western world um, could only keep things kind of normal there because about half the population was happy with it. To go into a country with a population larger than Iraq 
that hates you from the moment your first boot start touches the ground with less money than the coalition had was madness. But the thing where Putin wasn't so mad was he also bet that the West wasn't going to put sanctions in. And I think he bet correctly. Um, I'll tell you, he bet correctly because if you remember, the Germans weren't going to stop Nord Stream 2 and they were going to send some helmets and nobody was going to do anything. And I think one guy just turned out to surprise everybody. Zelensky didn't get into a helicopter and take the American ride. He said, I don't want to ride, I want weapons. And, and Zelensky has stood through video, through a, but a video presence in the parliaments the world over, shaming us, letting us know that he's fighting our war. Send the weapons, we're the ones dying, but okay, send the weapons. And it's difficult to, to, to look up with to look at somebody who has integrity, who's fighting your war, and say no. And so we are sending the weapons, and we have done the sanctions, but Putin wasn't wrong. Based on past behavior of the, of the West, there was a real chance that we were going to do almost nothing. And I think, but for Zelensky, we may have done almost nothing. So that's an interesting, a very interesting thought. And actually, it, it does bring me to something I've noticed in the West, um, after after the war and after people realized that Zelensky was a, a heroic figure, really a, a self-sacrificial leader who who is going to to fight as much as he needs to to, to keep his country keep his country going. And um, so, in financial centers, because my my background is as a finance journalist, so I I, I uh, mix with a lot of people from politics and finance. And in financial centers in the UK, as well as Switzerland, uh, the Baltics, I've noticed a lot of uh, regret, really, and self-recrimination among uh, among people here that uh, they took Russian money, they Kremlin money, they um, uh, invested it, and they made Putin more powerful. And now, now when they look at uh, the consequences of making Putin more powerful, they uh, they feel bad about themselves. So I, I just wonder, do you think that's do you think that's what's happening um, from, from your uh, point of view? And uh, what what else should uh, should uh, bankers and and asset managers and so forth and co- corporate figures do to uh, you know to tell the good money from the bad? Really. Well, first of all, it it starts with government. Um, it starts with are you creating a ecosystem? that's hospitable to dirty money. The United Kingdom consciously chose to do that. The United Kingdom said, all that dirty money is going to go somewhere, and if it's not here, it's going to go somewhere else, so it should be here. And I, the, the former ambassador of the United Kingdom said to me, didn't put the word dirty in front of it, but we all knew what we were speaking about, all that money is going to go somewhere, so it should go here. Um, now, when that is your policy, you create an eco- ecosystem where we don't look carefully at it and where we don't realize the costs. Now, the costs are Litvinenko, the Skripals, the police officer who was poisoned while, while, while trying to, to save lives in Salisbury. These are real costs. There are other costs. The, the other costs are 
all the lawyers who are so used to working for Russian oligarchs that when a journalist goes out to publish a book about the corruption, these lawyers then bring libel suits on the, on, on, uh, in the name of these oligarchs, but often really for the Russian government to shut down honest journalism that's trying to stop the dirty flow of money. Now, when that happens, what you see are members of the bar in the United Kingdom doing their best to suppress free speech and aid dirty money. That's making the most professional level of our society and, and the, most, the one that's supposed to be governed by the most morals dirty, corrupt. And our societies become like their societies. They do not become more like us when they move their money here. We become more like them because we do what's necessary for the money. Hey, we all want like to put our kids through school. And maybe when you put your kids through school, there's that love, lovely house you know, that you've been looking at in the Cotswolds and you've got this client and all you have to do is bring this case that's completely wrong. But you right. do it. And... Um... Um, of course, the, the counter-argument to that is that uh, these are the oligarchs' money. Uh, they Sure, they have businesses with the Kremlin, but uh, these businesses are not uh, ostensibly illegal, and the West is supposed to have um, the sanctity of private property. And um, how does that square with, with taking people's money away? Great. So let's take a look at how the money was earned, okay? When, when you can look at Mordashov, the steel magnate in Russia, who had a steel town of 40,000 people, and, and all his workers had been given va- vouchers to buy shares, right? What did he do? He stopped paying them all. He starved 40,000 families for months. And then when all these people are dying and selling their possessions, he opens a chain of kiosks all around the factory saying, we'll buy your vouchers for cash, the only cash these people have ever seen. And that's how he got his control. Or you've got people like, sorry, not Usmanov, but uh, you've got people like Shuvalov living in, a, in, an, in an 11 million or 20 million pound uh, flat on the embankment who does a deal with Usmanov where Usmanov borrows $40 million from Shuvalov for a year and pays him back at $120 million. When Usmanov had the money, why did he have to borrow money from Shuvalov and, and pay him back all this money? I don't know, but Shuvalov was a government minister at the time. All of these people have stolen the money in the future of the people of the Russian Federation. And, and their money shouldn't be theirs at this point. They have raped the country and they're continuing to rape the country because they're there for a reason, right? Putin says, you can run the iron business and you can run the nickel business and and you can run this business as long as there's got to be a stream of money coming out. You funnel some of it to my palace. And by the way, I I have two mistresses, right? And they need to be supported too. So you got to put, you got to buy this one a house in Monaco and you got to buy that one. And they're stealing from all these state corporations. The money isn't going into the state. The money is going into the the people who run them into Putin's mistresses and his kids and to Putin's pocket because that's their job. Their job is rip off the state and you can get rich doing it, but you got to make sure that most of the money goes where I tell you. Right. Well, I can see you're very passionate about that and I suppose that that goes to the sort of work you're doing now, helping uh, the Anti-Corruption Foundation with this research. But uh, uh, before I say that, I, I'd like to say again thanks to our exclusive advertisers at H- H5 Strategies and Advisory Group in Bucharest. They're specialized in uh, Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and Africa. 
And by the way, given the the way this new uh, brave new world of podcasting works, it's also worth mentioning that this um, sponsorship has no uh, bearing on the content of 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 the journalism, and it's my decision what what I do with uh, with the with the content and um, and the editorial aspects. So there's there's complete independence uh, from um, from commercial interest on that. But having said that, the the next question is: um, You're now volunteering for the FBK, which is Alexei Navalny's anti-corruption foundation, and they also produce wonderfully entertaining videos. They have humorous takes, and they make fun of of the oligarchs and the corrupt uh, officials of Russia, and including. Uh, Vladimir Putin himself, they make lots of fun of him and uh, they ridicule him and it's 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 all extremely uh, amusing to watch but um, there's a lot of, uh, of a lot of uh, uh, minute work and a lot of uh, uh, sort of calculation and research going in, in the back of in, in, in the research of that in the back end of that. So um, could could you describe the, the sort of work that goes into tracing assets and making connections and, uh, you know, what, what your advice would be for a reporter like me who does this sort of thing or someone who works in compliance in a big company who's trying to discriminate between uh, clean money and dirty money? Sure. Well, first, let me say that, interestingly enough, on the, on the Navalny end, um, I'm not on the investigative side. I'm more on the prosecution side, which I'll get to in a moment. So... Um, the Anti-Corruption Foundation and and the Justice for Magnitsky campaign, we basically started the same way, investigating corruption. Um, in the Magnitsky campaign, we were investigating one particular crime, the, the theft, the fake refund, and, and where the money went. So we were tracing the money all over the world. Whose pockets did it go into? And... And it wasn't just going into these police officers' pockets and the, and the lawyers and the judges. We found it going and we found money going into um, Putin's friend, this cellist, Sergei Radzulgin. And then when we looked at his bank account, we found out that $2 billion went through this cellist account. So, I mean, obviously, the cellist doesn't make that kind of money. So he's obviously a front for Putin and he's got money coming in from all sorts of stuff. And that's also what FBK has done. Uh, Navalny's Anti-Corruption Foundation on a much larger scale. They, they're not married to one crime like we are. So they, they've, they've done stealing within Gazprom and they have a lovely, fantastic expose that just came out this week showing how the head of Gazprom has put $2 billion worth of property in his pocket and that doesn't even count the money he has. They did Putin's palace watched by you know, it's 120, 140 million people have watched this thing about this giant palace that's been built for Putin on the Black Sea, all of it with money being kicked in from state corporations of robbing the people of Russia to buy. So uh, interestingly enough, look, much of what the uh, what FBK does and what we do comes from public sources. Um, you look at people and you say, hmm, you know, where does he live? Um and you find out where he lives. Uh, the volley, they fly drones over the houses. It's, it's wonderful. And they, they snap what picture, the, they snap the number of the helicopter that like Miller is landing in, right? And then the number, tail number of his plane. And, you, and then you, when you have the number of a helicopter, number of a plane, piece of property, you see, you see who it's registered to. And, hmm, you know, it's not registered to Miller. It's registered to this guy or this company. So then you go look at who owns the company. And you, it, as you dig, you get more and more. And, 
And sometimes you hit dead ends. So you kind of put that on hold for a while and you're working on something else. And then a piece of something, you're, while you're working on this, a piece goes there. And also you hit a critical mass. You, you get to the point where we got or where FBK got, where you're so big that people come to you for, with information. They're, they're having a fight with this guy, so they're pissed off, so they give you a bunch of documents. Or they're just pissed off at Putin, or they hate the system. And, and so it snowballs, and you get to a point where with a bunch of good investigators, and when you're well-known, uh, you just get this momentum. And so my, my role, as I mentioned, we were good at making um, some noise in Russia, but got nothing else done in Russia. And so the Magnitsky campaign... Uh, refocus to passing laws and using laws. We passed Magnitsky Acts to get these guys, but we also went around the world using anti-money laundering legislation when we found money in bank accounts in places like Switzerland or wherever that didn't have a Magnitsky law. Uh, we would use anti-money laundering uh, laws to get it. So the Navalny campaign when uh, about a year ago when I started working, it was more than that, but it was when it was when Alexei Navalny was returning to Russia uh, to be arrested. Um, I started working with them to get some legal results in the West because they have these fantastic investigations, but nothing. Yeah, and they show them in Russia and people go, wow, these guys are such crooks, but they don't get any reaction in the West for them. So initially the idea was to turn some of these investigations into proper legal filings and to see if we could get some of these guys criminal cases criminal cases against some of these people or have some of their money frozen. And at the same time, Alexei Navalny released a list of 35 people that he thought should be sanctioned worldwide, which we refer to as the Navalny 35. And we started preparing information and sending that out to governments all over the world to get them sanctioned. And most of them are sanctioned at, at this point. Right, well, that's very interesting, but also given the fact that Alexei Navalny is probably uh, Putin's biggest political enemy, and I suppose uh, Bill Browder, your associate, is Putin's biggest financial enemy. Um, and of course, Navalny was poisoned almost to death. He would have been dead were it not for, for I suppose, good luck and, 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 and good medicine. And he's now in prison, you know, perhaps, God knows for how long, you know, perhaps, perhaps a very long time. Um, this is a, d- a dangerous situation, isn't it? Do, do you fear that you're going to be attacked or have your computer hacked or your phone hacked? Uh, I mean, you know, there are so many examples of grisly, odious abuses against dissidents in Russia. And uh, I just wonder if, if, you feel like, if you feel like you're in danger or you feel like you need to take precautions. Uh, well, physical danger, sometimes yes, sometimes no. It depends it Depends on the time, how much you're pissing somebody off. I think Putin's got much larger problems than little old me at the moment. Um, and, and so I don't feel in a lot of physical danger. Um, certainly all of us who work in this business have to worry about hacks. Uh, there's no question about that. All of us take precautions um, because the stuff we're working on changes lives of of very, very rich people who don't want their lives to change. Right. And um, so you, you do feel safe. You, you, you feel like um, in, in London you, you wouldn't be physically tracked or attacked as, you know, as, as other dissidents like Litvinenko. Or... I wouldn't go that far. Look, I, um, I mean, during our investigation, a man named Alexander Peroplichny 
came to me and gave me a bunch of documents showing how rich the tax inspectors got. Parapolici had worked with the tax inspectors. Um, he helped them move their money that they had stolen from the crime. And um, they had an argument. And so the tax police, the tax inspectors were causing him problems in Russia. He gave me all this information to, so that we could cause them problems, thinking that, you know, you cause them problems, they get not, they lose their jobs, and then they can't use their state apparatus against us anymore. Now, what he didn't realize was when attacking those tax people, they were attacking this whole fake, fake narrative that the Russian government had built. So the Russian government story is... The parallel the, universe. Right. The Russian government story is... See, the Russian government can't say, yes, a bunch of our officials... Um, stole $230 million from the Russian government, and some of it even adds, ends up in Putin's best friend's bank account, right? They can't, that, that narrative doesn't work for them. So the narrative they tell is that we stole all the money and that our whole campaign is just to persecute all the honest police officers who are trying to track us down, right? So this guy, Parapolichny, by actually giving us information, showing us all this money going into the bank, into the bank accounts of the tax tax inspectors who authorized the refund was hurting the Russian narrative. So they killed him and they killed him here in London. Now he was jogging, he dropped dead of a heart attack, vomiting green goo. And then the, the head of plant toxology at Kew Gardens here detects this uh, Gelicellium elegans. It's a, it's a small flower that grows on the foothills of the Himalaya called heartbreak grass, it gives you a heart attack. And it's often used by the Russian and Chinese Secret Service. It's not often found in London. Um, so, you know, do it's, I... So it's worth saying that officially the, the British the, the uh, British institution that carried out the, um, the autopsy declared it was a, a natural death or something like that? Well, the, uh, no, they, they had an, an inquest and at the end of that they, they declared natural causes, but they declared it this way. They said, well, we, um, we threw out all of the biological evidence except a very small sample. We didn't take his computer. We didn't take his phone. We didn't go through any of that because his wife wanted to use the computer and wanted to use the phone. And who are we? This is the police talking, you know, to, to get it back from her. They, the British government closed part of the hearings on grounds of national security. And we don't know why and we don't know what was there. And as I, I said to somebody once when I were interviewed, they said, well, you know, if you ever die in London, what do you want to happen? I said, whatever happens, please don't have the people who investigated his death investigate mine. Well, exactly, um, exactly. And so, you know, uh, God forbid anything happens and let's hope the, the authorities in this country have a different, <clears throat> a, a different attitude now because they, they are uh, more attuned to, to the nature of, of, of the Russian regime because of the war in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine. But at the same time, it, uh, this and other cases show there's a way to go to protect whistleblowers, to protect campaigners. And um, I suppose if you could say a little bit about what you would like to see from the authorities on this, that would be useful. Well, I, I mean, I think it, it's very, truthfully, it's very difficult to protect people short of, you know, round-the-clock security, witness protection programs, stuff like that. Um, the best way you protect people is by making sure that the Russians don't have um, a spy apparatus in your, in your country um, and a network that they can tie into. I mean, the, 
the, the people who killed the Scripples, you know, came over here and did test runs. The people who killed Litvinenko tried several times. Um, <clears throat> Theresa May threw out a whole bunch of Russian embassy people, and I think that's important. But I, but I think there's more we can do. I, I think we've just it's it's about making the country inhospitable, not just to Russian money, but to Russian spies. We should be making sure um, that it's difficult to bring anybody in here. And more than that, when you kill somebody, um, we got to do more than we did before. I mean, just throwing the embassy people out so that the spy network is is hard to uh, rebuild is, is not the answer. You've got to do something that really makes Russia hurt. Uh, the whole country hurt for a very long time. It's just, it's not okay to to send spies to poison people uh, in, in your country. Do you feel like these sort of of, um, of, of news and, and, and revelations um, reach the Russian population? Do you think the, the Russian voter is aware of, of, of the nature of, of, the, um, of the Kremlin today? The average Russian voter? No, I think that the average Russian voter lives in a... Um, in a closed ecosystem created very carefully by the Kremlin to show that um, the world is against Russia, that the West wants Russia to fail, which we want them to lose this war, but I don't think that the West has... It's not really been our agenda to crush Russia. Um, but that's what Russians are raised on. And Russians are raised on now we're strong and people fear us because we have a czar, Putin. And, 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 you know, and, and so Russians, for the most part, buy into that. Um, and don't forget that you know, Putin's been czar for a long time now. It's a whole generation of young Russians who've known nothing else. Now, sooner or later, um, people get tired with, Look, it's not normal to have a president for life unless you're in an African republic or a Central Asian republic, right? Even And, there, it's not normal. Let's, okay. you know, let's not generalize. Okay, so. right. No, but I'm just saying that those countries that have presidents for life tend to try and overthrow them sooner or later um, because it's not right. It, yeah. It's not a democracy. Yeah. There's no such thing as a... It's a democracy. You can't, you can't have a democracy and a president for life, right? So sooner or later, hopefully sooner, hopefully when the Russians really see what, what's going on in this war, because Putin has lied to them. Putin has told them it's not a war, it's a special operation. Uh, they don't know that there are in excess of 20,000 Russian casualties and probably three times as many wounded. Putin is very careful uh, to take soldiers from the poorest, smallest, farthest away towns all over Russia, people who have no political voice. If these kids were, if these were Moscow kids dying and St. Petersburg kids dying, and you were walking down the streets seeing the war wounded in the capitals, this war would be over. And one day the Russians are going to realize that they've been lied to and they're not going to be happy. So you think that's a given? You think it's just a matter of time? And so I suppose underneath it all, you're still holding on to the, 
to the um, vision you had entering Moscow in 91 or 92 of a free and democratic Russia that is at peace and in harmony with uh, with the world really Yeah, absolutely. Look, I'm I'm pro Russia. I love Russia. My some of my best friends are Russia, and some of the people I admire the most are Russian. Sergei Magnitsky was Russian. Um, I don't. I detest the Russian government. The Russian government has stolen the future of Russia, and until and and, and as long as the Russian government is in there, Russia will never meet its full potential. Uh, or, and it or is it is an, it. it is an amazing potential, isn't it? In in in, in all sorts of ways. Um, but uh, for the moment, you know, for the moment, with with the Kremlin attacking neighbors and potentially, uh, you know, in the future, potentially attacking even even other countries than its neighbors, do you think um, it's wiser to try to isolate them um, the way basically the West has isolated North Korea, or do you favor the sort of uh, European German French approach of phone calls and uh, and you know trying to negotiate and and come come to a to a common understanding. There is no common understanding here. All right. I mean, the understanding is you have a country. You're free to do most things in there. I mean, if you're you know when countries go when when countries start genocides in their own countries, the West tends to step in, right? But you're not free to do this. There's nothing to compromise on whatsoever. And, and there, we, are not, we are not isolating them enough. They're still able to sell their oil. We're still buying their gas. It, it's, what we're doing now is not enough. And, and again, um, the more we let them in, the more we become like them. We have principles that we need to stand behind very solidly now. We have to isolate that place until that government cracks. Right. And uh, well, on that note, uh, there we have it. That was the first episode. And uh, many thanks again to H5 Strategies in Bucharest, uh, an advisory group specialized in Eastern Europe. And thanks again, of course, Jameson, uh, for joining us and best wishes to you in uh, in your work and in your life. And the same for everyone uh, watching this. Thanks very much. Thank you. All right.